welcome to Common Ground, a podcast series discussing new research and interesting projects in the field of complementary medicine. Hello, my name is Jackie Fay, Head of Education at Vitaly. Vitaly is a complementary medicine distributor with a goal to strengthen the relationship between students, health care practitioners and premium complementary medicines. Please note this podcast is suitable for general public audience and anyone interested in health. Firstly, we'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands and pay our respects to elders past and present. Today on Common Ground, I'll be discussing the evidence for the health benefits of an organic diet and the role of food as medicine for our health and well-being with Dr. Lisa Oates. Lisa has been practicing as a naturopath and wellness consultant for over 20 years and completed her doctoral research on the health benefits of organic diets after observing firsthand in her clinical practice the benefits of transitioning to an organic diet. Welcome to Common Ground, Lisa. Hi, Jackie. How are you? Hello. Lovely to have you on Common Ground. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Lisa, I wanted to ask you, what's your background and what led you to your PhD topic after practicing natural medicine? Wow. So uh, as I think you mentioned in the intro, I'm a a naturopath and wellness consultant. But Mm. as a naturopath, I've always specialised in the use of food as medicine. Um, So when I'm looking at prescribing food for its therapeutic benefits, I'm obviously wanting to maximise what I think is beneficial about that food. But at the same time, I wear I'm aware that food may inadvertently also contain some substances that would potentially be harmful. So I guess I've always been inclined to invoke the precautionary principle or what my mother would refer to as better safe than sorry. (laughs) Um, And so I, you know, I was always recommending organic food to patients, but but I was also aware that 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 came with a cost. So I guess I was interested to know whether that, that cost was warranted. I think these days too, um, the decision to consume organic food is not just about personal health it's also a values decision and Mm. I'm finding that more and more of my patients are wanting recommendations that also reflect their values around sustainability Mm. so that has become more of an issue in recent years as well I think. Mm. Interesting and how do we know um, we are eating organic food are there regulations standards do we have labeling guidelines? There are um, Mm. But it is a little bit complicated. So in, in Australia, our standards, like most others, don't just refer to uh, avoiding substances that are foreign to nature, so things like pesticides and synthetic fertilisers and things like that. Um, it's also avoiding genetic modification, but it promotes local renewable resources. It ma- maintains diversity and it also considers uh, animal welfare. So the actual principles of organic agriculture are not just about what they're not using. It's around health, ecology, fairness and care. Mm. And so there are certification bodies uh, who whose job it is to basically audit the processes and make sure that um, anyone who's operating under that operating under that certification is following the rules of the national um standards for organic and and biodynamic produce. Um, So in Australia, we actually have quite a number of different certifying bodies, but there are really two key ones. So the the main logos you will see are the BUD logo, which is uh, the Australian Certified Organic logo, and the NASA logo, which 
looks like the space agency, but actually has an extra A in it. Um, so they're the two logos you most commonly see in Australia. And if you're seeing those logos, you can be pretty confident you're getting um, what you're paying for. But sometimes the word organic is just kind of used. Yes, <laughs> I was going to ask you that. It, um, so what you're really looking for is certified organic. And so those two logos are the ones you'll most commonly see in Australia. You might also see the European logo, European U Union logo, which is uh, sort of looks like a, a leafy sort of thing, or the USDA organic logo. So you will sometimes see some international ones as well, but 95% or so in Australia will be the BUD logo or the NASA logo. Mm. If I can add this question in also, um, when when people are at markets, they're sometimes um, promoted organic foods. What's sort of the, the, the go there? Is that um, to, to caution with regards to that because you don't necessarily see those logos? Yeah, so there is actually a scheme um, under Australian Organic for those smaller producers so there is actually a specific scheme for those smaller producers that they can actually um, sign up to, okay. and it's a it's a bit um, it's a bit of a simpler process for them. I think the easiest way when you're going to a farmers market is to ask questions because certainly at farmers markets there can be, and you can tell the places generally they're, they're the places that aren't just selling seasonal produce. They seem to have the same stuff all of the time mm, right? Um, and a huge range of things that aren't in season. So yes. I would say, you know, if you're going to um, if you're going to a farmer's market and you see, you know, each time you see that stall they have different stuff and they only have a limited selection of stuff and you can ask the people questions, um, then, you know, I, th I, th I think that's um, a way to go about it as well, that sort mm. of personal approach. But if you really sort of want, that full confidence, then I'd go for something that, that had the logos. Okay, yeah. Okay, thank you. That's that's interesting to know. And is there any evidence that organic food has more nutritional value? Yes and no. Yeah, <laughs> so, okay. Um, look, it's complicated. I think when they do the systematic reviews, which they do, they try to um, put a whole heap of studies in that were based on different nutrients in different foods, in different growing conditions, and then they try to sort of make some sort of generalisation. So in terms of macronutrients, probably not that much of a difference. Micronutrients, um, there, there are probably some differences for some foods, but you couldn't generalise and say that all organic food is higher in vitamins and minerals, for instance. Um, there are certainly examples where, that, where that's true. Um, but probably the thing that stands out the most are the phytonutrients right. um, because in the in the absence of synthetic chemicals to protect that plant, um, the plants produce their own chemicals. They produce their own phyto, um, phytonutrients. And these are the things that, that impart colour and flavour and, you know, the sensory qualities that we love about organic food. But it they also protect the plant from predators and disease and those sorts of things. So when they're not protected with synthetic chemicals, they produce a lot more of those natural phytonutrients. Ah. And so um, we are quite confident that, and, and most well, the studies do support the fact that um, while they may, there may be inconsistencies in other nutrients, certainly for phytonutrients, we expect organic food generally to be higher in those things. Mm, okay, that's very interesting. And so in your PhD, you looked at certain pesticides in urinary samples and their association with an organic diet versus the conventional diet. 
Can you talk about pesticides, how we are exposed to them and the potential health concerns? Sure. So for most people, uh, diet is the most common source of pesticide exposure. So unless you're actually working directly with pesticides, for most people, um, the pesticide exposure will come through their diet. And I think it's important to remind people too that pesticides are designed to be toxic to living organisms. Um, So And they're not necessarily specific to the target species. So I don't think we should be entirely surprised that that there can potentially be these sorts of effects. Now, to be fair, they are at very low levels, but what we are concerned about a lot of the time is that chronic and cumulative exposure to these chemicals. So while, while chemicals themselves are tested one at a time, That's not the way we interact with them. Mm. We are constantly exposed to chemicals from multiple sources that all interact together and you get that cocktail effect. Yep. So some of the the conditions that they've been associated with, and it can actually be quite difficult to track these things as well. We know more probably about acute poisoning because we see the immediate effects of acute poisoning. Um, But it's not like you pick up an apple and a little label drops out and tells you how many parts per million of this and how many parts per billion of that. Mm. Um, And a lot of the conditions that we're concerned about are ones with long latency periods. So how do you track back that disease that you get in your 50s to something that you ate in your 20s, for instance? Mm. So so it's actually quite difficult to to really um, even demonstrate what these effects might be. But certainly... um, you know, we, we've seen evidence of metabolic diseases, damage to the immune and the nervous system. The nervous system is no surprise mm. because most, of, well, a lot of these chemicals were originally designed as nerve agents for warfare. Um, so that that is their mechanism of action. Um, we also know that that they can disrupt hormones and therefore reproductive function. And there've also been some links with some cancers. Mm. Wow, that's huge. Gosh. Can you um, discuss some of the latest research on how these chemicals may impact the gut microbiome? I think that's a really interesting space and Mm. there's a a lot more information coming out at the moment. So mostly, uh, currently it's mostly animal studies, um, but they are showing that pesticides are disrupting the the balance of the gut microbiota. Uh, And the other thing that, that we're seeing from the studies too, that it's increasing intestinal permeability of the gut. Uh, and also causing some inflammation in the gut. And these are obviously things that we're dealing with day in, day out. And different pesticides do affect the the microbes in the gut in different ways. Uh, But for the most part, we believe, you know, what's happening here is not beneficial. Mm. So it's tending to create an environment that can promote obesity and diabetes and metabolic conditions and, of course, all the other things we associate with increased intestinal hyperpermeability and gut inflammation and all those sorts of things. Mm. Um, I might mention glyphosate specifically because I think that that's a really interesting space at the moment. Yep. Um, so glyphosate you're probably familiar with. It's the main active ingredient in Roundup and it's a weed killer, but it's also an antimicrobial agent. Mm. Uh, and so it's not really surprising that, that you know, a substance like that would disrupt the, the gut microbiome, just like other antibiotics do. The interesting thing with glyphosate that's coming through, though, is that there are certain amino acids that appear to be protective. Uh, so tryptophan, tyrosine, phenylalanine. So 
what that means is people that are on low protein diets may be more prone to the problematic effects of glyphosate. Right. Um, so, you know, lots of people are moving to a plant-based diet these days uh, and that can come with a lower protein intake. So I think we've got to be really cautious with our patients that we are maintaining, you know, um, a good balance of all of the amino acids. Uh, so, you know, people going to a plant-based diet too are also obviously in ideally consuming a lot more plant foods mm. uh, and so the risk would potentially increase Mm. A lot of people are going onto those diets, I think, for environmental reasons, and I certainly applaud that. But one thing to note is that overall the the environmental impact of a non-organic vegetarian diet is similar to an organic omnivorous diet. Right. Um, So I think if if you're going onto a plant-based diet because of environmental concerns, then it really should go with increasing your level of organic consumption as well. Um, if you really want to do that well. So obviously a plant-based organic diet is going to be better than a a plant-based non-organic diet. Um, But for those people who still like to consume some meat, if you go more organic, you are reducing the overall environmental impact as well. Mm, Wow, very interesting. And are there specific population groups that are more at risk? So you've mentioned the low-protein diets. Are there any others? There are. So certainly uh, we're particularly concerned for pregnant and lactating women or women who are attempting to become pregnant. So those critical periods of development, I think, uh, we're particularly concerned about. For children, they um, they don't fully develop the enzymes that metabolize these chemicals until they're about seven or eight years old. So I would say for younger children in those critical periods of development, um, organic food is a really good idea. And I'm not necessarily suggesting 100% organic. I know that that is not always practical or realistic, but every little bit mm. that, that you can help. Even in my research, we didn't expect the organic phase participants to consume 100% organic. We kind of went 80%, <laughs> you know, is, is realistic. And most of them were able to achieve 90%. Mm. Um, but you've got to also live in the real world. There are also people who might have genetic polymorphisms that could impact um, their ability to metabolise some of these chemicals. Uh, we know that interaction with the gut and the, the gut microbiome um, can be problematic as well. Anyone who has slow transit time um, or poor detoxification processes. And the other thing I think to, to bear in mind too is um, calorie restriction. Calorie restriction will tend to mobilise any sort of Lipo, um, lipophilic toxins, so any of those chemicals that might have been stored in fatty tissue and things like that can mm. potentially be mobilised and that can put an increased load uh, on the body as well. Mm. Yeah, I'm just thinking um, because I, I used to live in the country for the past 12 years, just recently sold up, and I only got asthma diagnosed once living in the country mm. and um, glyphosate was being sprayed all around us and um, I actually looked for alternatives and found two, um, pelagonic acid and um, horticultural grade salt and vinegar, literally, and mm. uh, it worked well for, for weed control and then some of the surrounding neighbours started using it, which is brilliant. Yeah. But I'm just thinking, are there sort of some key um, nutrients that, that they can help you with resilience if, if you're exposed to those pesticides or it's best just to, I mean, obviously it's best to avoid them, so that's why we're talking organic foods. Yeah. Are, they, are there just a, off the top of your head just a couple of go-to nutrients that you work with? 
Nothing specific. I think really we're looking at optimising liver function yeah. generally. So we're, we're looking at the, the, the nutrients we would typically look at to opti- optimise liver function mm. and detoxification pathways and things like that. You know, big fan of, you know, brassica vegetables and those sorts of things um, there. Uh, but, of course, they are also um, foods that typically have a very high surface area for absorption of pesticides, so they would definitely need to be organic. Yes, yes, okay. And if we can't access or afford organic food, are there other ways to minimise exposure? (coughs) (coughs) Sorry, can we just repeat that one? Yeah, of course, no problem. If if we can't access or afford organic food, are are there other ways to minimise exposure? For example, does washing food remove... The pesticide residue, um, are there certain foods to avoid? Um, like do we have the dirty dozen in Australia or is that more sort of US? Yeah. That That is more of a US thing and yeah. I think it's problematic because a lot of people do try to use the dirty dozen list yeah. and it's important to understand that regulations and patterns of use vary between regions. So those lists are really not very relevant in Australia. Right. A lot of pesticides are absorbed, so people will often, you know, peel their vegetables or things like that or fruits to sort of try to get rid of those surface pesticides. And that may get rid of a bit of the surface pesticide, but some of it will have been absorbed as well. And, of course, when you peel things, you're also losing some of the nutritional value of it. So Mm. that's probably not the best way to go. I would say in Australia um, the things that we know tend to have higher residues Things like the palm fruit, so apples and pears and things like that, uh, berries, um, green leafy vegetables and herbs, and also any food with a large surface area. So, you know, I mentioned broccoli earlier. That's got lots of little nooks and crannies and lots of surface area for the chemicals to be absorbed. Okay. Yeah, right. And can you um, can you recommend ways to source organic food, like any tips for looking, um, you know, locally sourced? Um, you mentioned seasonal um, yeah. purchasing as well. So any tips there? Yeah, I think uh, if you're if you're going for seasonal and locally sourced, often it is less expensive. Um, so you know, things like farmers markets can be really good because you're cutting out a lot of the middlemen and things like that, or the middle people. Yeah. Um, and um, some of the organic grocers at larger markets, you can grow a few things yourself. Yes, good point. Um, of course. I, I think be, be cautious because, you know, backyard um, soil sometimes do have contaminants in them, so you would have to be cautious there. But, you know, I live in an apartment. I still grow, you know, some lettuce, some herbs, you know, a few different things. Uh, and the other are the box delivery schemes. So they're often quite efficient mm. because you're getting, you know, what's in season basically. So, you know, you, you're not going to get everything you you might put on your shopping list, but you'll get what's in season and that will be a, a you know, more cost-effective way to do it as well. Mm. Yeah, okay, good one. And any tips for maintaining their nutritional value? Sometimes people have mentioned organic food just, just can die a lot faster, but that's the nature of it, isn't it? Because it hasn't been loaded <laughs> with stuff. Yeah, to a certain extent. And look, ultimately, um, maintaining the cold chain is the the big thing. So trying to keep things as cool as possible, as much as possible. Right. So if you are going to a farmer's market or something and it's summer, then I would say, you know, take an esky or something that you can put your food in. So the the more you keep it cool, the longer it will tend to to last. Um, But also as soon as something is harvested, it starts to lose its nutritional value. So 
consuming something as close to harvest time as possible is the best thing you can do, and that's where farmers markets are great. Mm, okay, good one. And and you're teaching Lisa um, food as medicine as part of Masters of Naturopathic Medicine. That's the yes. new undergraduate degree. Yeah, uh, the... undergraduate and postgraduate actually. The food as medicine is part of the postgraduate degree. Oh, okay, that's interesting. So could you sh- share some information about that? Sure. So. Uh, I mean, this has been my baby for many, many years. Yeah. Um, I do um, I do love Buddhist medicine and it has always been the cornerstone of my practice. Um, so um, so in the, the Buddhist medicine unit, we're looking at the neutral, uh, nutritional composition of food as well as potential food contaminants and we look at how they impact human health both physically and mentally. Um and throughout the unit, we were sort of examining the current evidence on different types of diets and organic food consumption, gut microbiome and those sorts of things. I think um, one of the interesting things in the way education is going at the moment is, you know, in the age of Google and ChatGPT and things like that, it's not difficult to find information, um, but it is sometimes difficult to know what information you can rely on. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that I think is important to me is, you know, really looking um, at how we critically assess the credibility of information in the space because there are so many mixed messages mm. <laughs> um, and it is a, a little bit of a minefield. So I think one of the things too when I was developing the unit that, uh, the unit that I really wanted to convey was that Buddhist medicine is not just about healthy eating or a healthy diet and I think sometimes, you know, they've been you know big popular courses and things like that that are called food as medicine but are effectively really more about um, just you know the Mediterranean diet and what a healthy diet looks like and things like that but I think it's really important to understand that that food as medicine is about treating holistically and individualizing the diet within the context of that person's values their culture their lifestyle and it recognizes that food choices don't only affect the the, the individual they also have ethical, social, economic and environmental effects on the wider community as well. So they're the sorts of things that, that you know, we're covering in Food as Medicine um, at SEU. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're some of the things that I'm passionate about. I think, you know, most um, naturopaths and nutritionists are, you know, you know, spot on in terms of their understanding of the nutritional value of food. But I think we like we like to sort of take that uh, a bit further. A bit further. And if someone was interested in, in um, finding out further information, how would they go about that? For that so course? the National Centre for Naturopathic Medicine at Southern Cross University, you would probably just Google um, Google that site and that will then show you all of the, the programs that are available at the moment. So you mentioned the undergraduate program um, earlier and that that's a recent addition and very exciting so this is the clinical training program it's a four-year program um, so it's actually a three-year bachelor of health science and then the final year is a master's so after the four years the students graduate with um, with a master's which is exciting mm. um, and it's also um, uh, it, it's a um, you can get commonwealth supported places for that as well oh fantastic so, um, that's made it a lot more affordable for, for some people. Yep. And then we've got our um, postgraduate programs as well. So we've got the advanced, um, the, the Masters of Advanced Naturopathic Medicine, which is for people who are already trained as naturopaths um, to upskill. Uh, and then there's the Masters of Naturopathic Medicine, which is more for people in allied health fields who, you know, 
want to um, do some additional study to bring naturopathy in as well. And more recently, we've got Masters in Lifestyle Medicine and uh, coming up Integrative Medicine as well. Oh, fantastic. So there's quite a suite of postgraduate courses that are all really kind of exciting. Um, but, yeah, the, the new introduction of the undergraduate um, program is um, it's just, you know, it's only just starting, uh, well, it's sort of getting off the ground this year. Some of the students have done some of the shared subjects in um, previous years, but we're getting into the sort of botanical medicine and nutritional medicine and all the exciting oh. stuff now. So, yeah. Wow. Really Very encouraging. You've got me interested. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for your time today on Common Ground. I'm sure um, the listeners will get a lot out of this, um, this uh, yeah, chat with you. Thank you. Lovely to chat with you, Jackie. Thanks so much for tuning in today. We'd love to hear from you if you'd like to leave us a review. Thank you. Mm-hmm.